heavily, I'm a clown. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Bitcoin Echo Chamber, the show about Bitcoin and Bitcoin firefighting calendars. I know it's been a while since I've released an episode. I mentioned on Twitter just the other day that the frequency of episodes will be uh, less moving forward, at least for the foreseeable future. There might be a time when I go back to a more regular schedule, but uh, you know, doing this part time, it's just the kind of thing where tracking down guests all the time uh, ended up not being something that I can focus my full attention on to be able to release an episode every week. But don't worry, the show's not going away. There will still be episodes. They just won't be as frequent. Had a really good guest on today. His name is Andrew Edstrom. And uh, really, like, fairly new to at least Bitcoin Twitter space. Uh, He recently released a book called Why Buy Bitcoin. And I had him on the show to talk all about it, so I'm going to jump right into the interview and let you guys hear more about what he has to say, and then I will come back at the end and give you a few parting notes. This episode of the Bitcoin Echo Chamber podcast is sponsored by WTFHappenedIn1971.com. The economics meme taking the world by storm where all of us are trying to find out the answer to what the heck happened in 1971. WTF1971 also has a merch store now. You can find it at WTF-1971.creator-spring.com. I'll post a link to that down in the show notes if you want to check it out. Thanks for the support. Andy, how you doing, man? I'm good, Colin. How are you? Really good. I'm really glad to have you on the show today. You know, you're kind of like underappreciated right now. Pleasure's mine. I mean, I feel like I could uh, I could say say the same about you. Um, you know, you're you're one of my long term follows, and uh, that is to say, I, I follow you and I've listened to your pod every episode. And um, yeah, I guess you're. I'm probably less or more underfollowed, perhaps than than you, but only because I I would say I came to the scene late. Right? I'm one of these uh, more recent add on guys trickling in from the from the finance side. Hmm. Yeah, and I just recently read your book. Uh, I just finished reading it earlier today, and I want to talk about that. But why don't you tell my audience a little bit more about yourself? Like, what brought you to where you're at today? Like, how did you even get into this whole Bitcoin thing? Yeah, so I guess I'll give you, uh, I never know whether to do the short story or the long story, but quick background on me. So I grew up in LA, went to college in Massachusetts, uh, studied econ. Keynesian economics, of course, neoclassical, which did not help me understand Bitcoin. <laughs> we can come back to that. Um, and then I worked on uh, Wall Street out of school. I did a couple years at Goldman Sachs. This was before the financial crisis. Um, so that was high times. And, you know, I can get into more detail on that later if, uh, if it's of interest. But, but yeah, I'm a career finance guy. So when I left Goldman... I worked at a private equity fund that spun out of the Carlyle Group, which you know was then and still is one of the biggest private equity firms around. And then I joined a hedge fund in LA called Tenenbaum Capital, about a $5 billion fund with a very broad investment uh, mandate. And then uh, about seven years ago, I joined the family firm, which is Wealth Management. Uh, my dad and his uh, co-founding partner started our firm, Westcap Group. Now it's over 30 years ago, but at the time it was 
I guess about 25, uh, they've been around for close to 25 years. And um, I got interested in growing that business. Um, and so so my background is, is finance and investment. And of course, I encountered, everybody's got the story. Well, most people got the story of, okay, how'd you first find Bitcoin? And for me, it's like most people, which is they see it once and they ignore it, right? I always love the stories of the of the you know, the guys who are, you know, comp sci CS guys who had studied distributed systems and you know knew about the Byzantine General's problem, and they're like, yeah, I read the white paper and I got it immediately, and I'm like, wow, I so so envious um, of those guys. So you know, for me, of course, it was no, I I was I actually do in retrospect remember when I first encountered it, I was on vacation in Central Europe, and I was driving with my wife and my two-year-old or one-year-old, uh, I think from Prague to Budapest, and uh, I was listening to my Economist pod, right, Economist magazine. If I could only listen to, or if I could only read one periodical, that would be my choice. It wouldn't be the Wall Street Journal, it wouldn't be, you know, New York Times or, or the Post or any of those would be The Economist. And The Economist had an article, this was 2013, I believe, and it basically went over my head. Um, but I do remember reading about it and totally dismissing it out of hand. 2016 was the, was the next time I heard about it. And that's when the that's when there was an article about the Dow uh, fork. That was Ethereum, of course. Mm-hmm. And again, I ignored it. So 2017, um, early in the year, a couple people started pinging me. Uh, shout out to Arun Rao, uh, who's a friend in tech. And he started putting this stuff on my radar. And so finally I got to the point where, you know, somehow I found coin market cap or something. And and I saw that there was, you know, I don't know, $10 billion of market cap here or something. And I thought, huh, this is either, um, you know, a bubble or a scam or something real. And I would say in retrospect, it was all three. If you, uh, <laughs> if you think about the broader space, right, in 2017. But... Um, but that's when I started really doing my homework uh, and digging in to understand uh, Bitcoin. So that's kind of mm-hmm. how I got to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then subsequent to that, you know, we went, of course, we went through the cycle and we had the peak in 2017. And I had continued to learn. And I decided, you know, this is, this is an investable thing. Um, you know, as a wealth manager, right, managing private client money for the most part. And by the way... Our firm, we're a registered investment advisor, and that means that we are fiduciaries. And I won't go into the details of the fiduciary standard, but suffice to say that fiduciaries have to put their clients' interests ahead of their own, and they really ought to invest in assets that are investable, that have a favorable risk-return profile. Mm-hmm. And I looked at Bitcoin and I saw, you know, was there downside? Could it fail? Sure. But I looked at the upside and I and the probability weighted, you know, magnitude of the upside versus the downside. And I said, and I said to myself, man, this is this is probably this is not only an extraordinary asymmetric trade, but it probably will be the best trade I ever see in my life. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that's a pretty big statement. And it was investable, so I decided, well, I'm going to have to find a way for my clients to get involved, and that means I'm going to have to explain it to them. <laughs> right. And if I'm going to have to explain it to them, well, I'm going to have to write it down. And if I'm going to have to write it down, you know, I might as well write it for a broader audience. So that was, you know, sort of my 
that's sort of brief on my background, you know, time and finance, how I found Bitcoin and, uh, you know, how I approached uh, writing the book. All right. So two major questions uh, on what you just went over. So my first one is coming into cryptocurrency, you know, as it so be called uh, in 2017. It's a bit of a mess, right? I mean, everything's all over the place. You got people launching tokens left and right. Everyone's talking about blockchain, not Bitcoin. People saying that that Bitcoin is dinosaur tech. How does a guy with a finance background come into cryptocurrency in 2017 and navigate that space? Um, Did you do a lot of floundering first or did you zero in on Bitcoin right away? Yeah, no, I would say I floundered. Um, you know, the the narrative of Bitcoin was the, you know, first crypto, but the first, you know, technology rarely wins um, at that time was pretty strong, right? People were saying, you know, Bitcoin is my space, you know, and Facebook's going to beat it or, you know, something's going to beat it like Facebook beat MySpace. You know, or it's, I don't know, AltaVista or Yahoo, you know, and Google's going to beat it later, right? In other words, the next generation of the version 2 is going gonna, is gonna to beat the original. And that, the narrative was strong, plus, as you got into the latter half of the year, the market cap was actually supporting that thesis, right? I mean, there were people talking about, you know, flippening of Ethereum versus Bitcoin, and, you know, this, is, this could happen. Um, so... No, it was a confusing time. I mean, I definitely took the arduous and painful journey, you know, through all the altcoins. And I'll say this. Always I have had more exposure to Bitcoin, you know, personally in terms of the investment. I've always had more exposure to Bitcoin than anything else. Mm -hmm. And I I don't think my Bitcoin exposure, even at the bottom let's say, as a percentage of my total portfolio. I don't think it ever was less than 50%. It might have been briefly. So I always kept a big chunk. And I always try to stay humble because, as you say, there was a lot of noise. And as somebody, you know, coming in relatively new in that period, I I looked at market cap, and we can talk about, you know, that as as a valid measurement or not. But I was at least wise enough to know that not maintaining significant exposure to the biggest a- asset out there in, as you call it, crypto, that would have been a mistake, right? Mm-hmm. So I always had large exposure, but for sure with time, it definitely took me time and exploration, you know, and going down all those other dead-end rabbit holes to figure out that, that Bitcoin was was the thing. Yeah, yeah. I know for me, um, I, I kind of went through the same phase where I, I found out about Bitcoin. I got really interested in Bitcoin. Then I was like, oh, there's all this other stuff. This stuff could be even better. It could do all these different niche applications. Oh, man, people are going to get rich if they pick the winners here. Yeah. Um, and then, interestingly, or around that time or really before I started really getting into Bitcoin, I was really heavily interested in OTC equities. And I started seeing a lot of similarities in cryptocurrency as a whole and um, a lot of the the pump and dump schemes that you see in OTC trading. Um, And it was so similar, in fact, that I'm convinced that a lot of the same people were running a lot of the same scams uh, just under different names. Yeah. No, I think that I think there's I think there's definitely wisdom in, uh, in what you just described. I mean, there's no doubt that small cap 
um, assets are the most you know subject to pump and dump and manipulation because I got the lowest liquidity, and there's always well I shouldn't say always there's frequently a big asymmetry of information, and then you layer on the you know the fear and greed dynamic let's say mostly greed which is you know if you happen to pick the the best you know or a successful you know small cap stock and you happen to time it right you can make a lot of money fast right now statistically when you probability weight that and you layer on as you say all the all the scamminess and and just all the landmines in that sector um you know, it's it's tough, man. It's tough to operate there. But but there's definitely that you look at the human psychology element and you say, uh, it feels like there's an opportunity, you know, to make money there. And if I can be smarter than the crowd and if I can trade it cleverly, you know, I'm going to get rich or I'm going to make money. And uh, yeah, it's a danger. We definitely saw some of that activity, more than some, a ton of it um, in crypto. Yeah. And I, I, for me, like I spent so much time and energy um, trying to learn how to stay two steps ahead of the other guys, uh, that when I finally did pick the winner, I got stuck in a spot with no liquidity, right? And it was like, yeah, yeah I made $30,000 on paper, um, but I don't I have anything out. to show for it. <laughs> yeah, man, getting out, as we say, I mean, that's one of the lessons I learned, you know, investing in general is uh, buying is easy, it's the selling that's hard. Right. Um, so... All right, so that makes sense, and and then you said that you you sort of built up this, um, I guess, educational material or or portfolio primer, I guess you could call it for your clientele. What was the initial reaction that you got from the first group of people you work with that you pitched this to? Did they look at you like you were nuts? Yeah, definitely got some uh, some confusion and some and some wide eyes. Um, you know, and so let's be fair. So my client base. I have plenty of uh, boomer clients, right? Mm -hmm. I have a range of clients, um, you know, in terms of ages. So it tends to skew older in part because, let's face it, it's it's older people that have the money, right? Mm -hmm. From a so you know, from a market opportunity as a wealth manager, that's where I'm more likely to find more attractive clients. Um, but I definitely have plenty of boomer clients, and they struggle with this more than most. Now, even, you know, even my younger clients, even the folks who are, you know, let's say in their 30s and they've got pretty good income and they're accumulated, accumulating assets and they're, you know, they're adding to their savings so there's something to invest. Even among those, there's, it's sort of a range. And um, clearly the mainstream media does, has not helped. Um, there's no doubt that the, that the fact that if it bleeds, it leads, you know, and the clickbait structure of mainstream media now have made it that such that when the average person thinks about Bitcoin, they think about, I don't know, they think about hacks of exchanges, they think about Mt. Gox, they think about the Silk Road. And so that, I think, t to the extent that many people have some impression of Bitcoin, you know, that's what's, that's what's in there. That's what's in their memory banks. That's what's lurking in their minds. And um, I would say my experience was you know, basically was similar to that. I mean, it, 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 it bore that out. Hmm. Did you have anybody that was just like, all right, you're off your rocker. I'm taking my business elsewhere. Or <laughs> do you feel like people opened up a little bit over time? Yeah. I mean, people, people have opened up over time. 
it has helped to put it on paper. Um, it has definitely helped to put it on paper. And I've gotten a range of, of responses. I've gotten responses like, wow, you know, this book was so helpful. I get it now. To, you know, this book was re- really well written and I understood some of it and I didn't understand, you know, some of it. To, you know, there's some clients who are like, I know I'm never going to understand this, um, hmm. you know, but I trust you because it looks like you did the work. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so it's a range. It's a range. Well, hopefully those those people, you know, the people that uh, rely on other people to do the dirty work for them, uh, pick the right people. Uh, I think, honestly, though, having read your book, I think that they're, they're probably in fairly good hands. And I do really want to talk about your book um, because... The first and foremost, the thing that that stood out to me about your book, the first half of the book is uh, pretty much primarily on macroeconomics and finance. Uh, and and what really blew me away was I, I got to chapter two, and chapter two is just an entire chapter on money, like what is money. And I think um, the first or second page of that chapter starts talking about uh, Mises and human action and Milton Friedman and uh, uh, F.A. Hayek, and I'm just like, okay. Uh, I at least already know that I'm on the same page intellectually with this guy. Um, where even though he, because this is an issue that you see from a lot of people coming in traditional finance backgrounds, they don't understand money. And as you said, that that's a transformation that you had to go through, um, in trying to arrive to some of these conclusions about Bitcoin. But for me, uh, I found that it was, uh, pursuing an understanding of macro that, allowed me to better understand Bitcoin and understand why Bitcoin is important. And I mentioned to you before we started recording that I like the way your book feels very Socratic because it presents all of these problems that can be observed very objectively uh, about the world that we live in and, and the nature of the systems that we've created. And then the reader suddenly thinks to themselves, well, th- these are a lot of problems. How are we going to solve these? There must be some solution. Um, and, and then you, you systematically go through the properties of what makes a thing of money. And then you compare and contrast, um, different things that, that we use as money or might traditionally think of money today, like fiat monies and, and gold and then, uh, Bitcoin. And, and I guess we'll get more into the, the scale that you use to grade these different currencies later on. But, um, Talk a little bit about your your thought process there. Yeah, no, I I appreciate that. Yeah, look, I and I wrote. I'll come to chapter two, but but I wrote in the intro, and I had the humility to approach this whole world to say, you know, I managed to spend a decade and a half working as a professional in finance and investment without understanding what is money. <laughs> so, if I did that, um, then I can be pretty confident that a lot of people don't understand what is money. And as you pointed out, you do have to understand what is money, um, at least in the broad strokes, to get to the bigger picture on Bitcoin and to get to the investment thesis on Bitcoin. So, um, yeah, for me, Bitcoin, for me, learning about Bitcoin was a forcing function for learning what is money. And I had the frustration that I think a lot of people have, which is even though I was an econ major in college, um, you know, the, the discussion of money was, was sort of cursory at best. And it was, what's money? Okay. It's those three things. It's a medium of exchange and it's a store of value and it's a unit of account. And, you know, that's kind of it. It doesn't examine, well, you know, what are those three factors and why are they important and what's more fundamental? I personally believe, and I'm not the first one to, to talk about this, 
that it is medium of exchange that is fundamental. Um, you know, I think Robert Breedlove has has articulated well recently, saying money is a medium of exchange across space and time or space time. And when you understand the time component, then you understand the store of value. And when you think about unit of account, you think, well, okay, why is it the unit of account? It's because money is half of every transaction. So why on earth would you, you know, measure in anything but the unit of account? Um, and so there's that exploration. And then, of course, that discussion actually tells you nothing about the underlying characteristics of money. And in my exploration, I couldn't find it was interesting different people talk about some of the characteristics that we all know okay scarcity yes that's important um it's got to be durable you know it's got to be divisible it's got to be fungible um i hadn't prior to, prior to seeing the book i hadn't seen any written exposition that had more than you know six or seven of these characteristics and so i tried to think about it hard and i tried to gather a lot of data sources and that's how i came to the 14 characteristics of good money you know, which I, which I list in the book. And, um, those are, you know, 14 is an inconvenient number. <laughs> it's unfortunate, right? It would be great if there were only five characteristics of good money, right? We could just, you could count them on your hand and, uh, it'd be a great soundbite and be real easy to talk about. But the truth is it's more complex than that. And not only, uh, are there this many characteristics of good money, but no single form of money scores well, on all these characteristics, right? We can rate the dollar, we can rate gold, we can rate Bitcoin, and we can rate them at points in time, and we can sort of plot their trajectories through time. And so, none of it's simple. Um, so, I'm not sure if I'm uh, if I'm if I'm answering your question about you know sort of the second the second layer of uh, of what is money, but certainly my goal was to open up people's minds a little bit with respect to you know, what are the fundamental characteristics? Because you can't understand Bitcoin without understanding those fundamental characteristics, I don't think, and then scoring Bitcoin and other major forms of money like gold, like the dollar, which I do in the book. Um, I think those are really important exercises in, uh, in understanding the bigger picture. So I think that this is actually one of the areas where a lot of Bitcoiners go wrong when proselytizing um, their their convictions. So uh, a, a lot of people, like you'll see it on Twitter, you'll see it all the time. Like someone will say, what is Bitcoin? Or, or why should I care about Bitcoin? Or can someone explain Bitcoin in one tweet? Uh, and you'll <laughs> see somebody say something like, um, uh, uncensorable, digital, globally transactable, peer-to-peer -peer digital cash maintained on a global distributed ledger <laughs> and and people are like well okay great you just told me what it was but why should i care you know it's like if a fish asked you what is water and why should i care about it and you were like uh it's two molecules of hydrogen one molecule of oxygen uh, and it has a high specific heat and you're like uh, what <laughs> you yeah. know, but but your method, you know, um, like I said, Socratically walking the reader through a series of, of problems, a series of shortcomings that can be observed in society um, that at a very functional level are, are critical to um, our ability to enjoy excess in society, right? To, to be able to think beyond meal to meal, um, 
are all made possible through the facilitation of free trade through uh, money, you know, that, that is much more difficult under bartering systems. And by walking people through the history of money and how we ended up where we are today and outlining all the problems that we have, we can better understand why Bitcoin is useful in our current paradigm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I'm, so I'm with you there. And, um, and I agree with you hundred percent. One of the things I tried to do, so part of the journey was, you know, understanding what is debt as well as understanding what is money. And of course that's the David Graeber stuff, right? Um, debt, he wrote this book, Debt, the first 5,000 years. He's an anthropologist. It's a great book. Um, it's actually been known, I think in the space for a while. Uh, the story is that, uh, is that Wences Casares, um, you know, founder of Zappo, um, you know, who was one of the guys, I think back in 2013 that introduced Bitcoin as an investment to, you know, a bunch of the Wall Street guys or some of the Wall Street guys, you know, rumor has it that he hands out copies of that book. And one of the benefits of that book is it's a discussion of, it's basically a debunking of the idea that money came first before debt. So that's the historical uh, framework. And that's not my original idea. That's Graeber's. It's basically, you know, when he wrote his book, he said, look, and it's a, by the way, it's a pretty beefy book. I mean, it's hundreds of pages and I highly recommend it. I've read it twice, but, but basically what he said, I think in his, his intro, what he wrote was, if I can get one message across, it's that there's no anthropological evidence that money came before debt. Like basically debt was the first, um, let's say mediator of exchange. And it stands to reason because when you think about the agricultural age, when you think about prehistory real quick, you know, we're all running around in the bush and property rights barely need to exist and there's hardly any property anyway. Then you get agriculture and you settle down. And so the question is, well, if I'm, you know, herding goats and, you know, you're raising wheat and you need a goat for the feast and I don't need your wheat so we had that double coincidence of wants problem um, that's so classic. Well, you know, it's not too convenient for um, it's not too convenient for us to endow some monetary asset with value to transact. You know, more likely since we live in a in a small settlement, I'll just owe you, or you'll just owe me. So maybe you know, I don't need your wheat right now, but you need my goat, and so you'll owe me and and pay me later. And that works when. We have a simple economy with not that many goods and services, and everybody lives, you know, in this small area. Nobody moves away. You basically are born, you live out your life, and you die more or less within a mile or two. So that's kind of the the you know the framework of of early history. But then, yeah, as we get specialization, um, and as we accumulate surplus, well, then it's not as practical for me to owe my neighbor for everything because instead of there being, you know, 10 or 15 goods or services in the economy, now there might be a hundred and settlements have grown larger. And so me owing, you know, the blacksmith who lives on the far end of town or me owing, you know, the merchant that comes through with his wares from a faraway land or vice versa doesn't become as practical and that's when we need that monetary good. And you can say, okay, well, you know, is endowing something with monetary value and creating a monetary good at a, at a civilizational level so valuable um, that this is going to occur? And the answer is yes, because the surplus and the efficiency and the productivity gained from specialization and trade is just so massive 
Um, and it comes from two sources, right? I think the the more obvious one is, well, if instead of being a jack of all trades, you know, instead of, uh, you know, raising animals and slaughtering and tanning them and also farming, you know, and weaving baskets and whatnot and spending, you know, spending an hour a day doing 10 different things, if instead I focus my time on one thing, then I can get that, you know, accumulated experience, you know, the 10,000 hours, get that expertise and my productivity per unit time increases substantially. So, so then if I can trade at scale with everyone specializing, then everyone's more productive. And the second piece of it is also you get better matching of talents, right? You know, maybe I am more mathematically inclined and so therefore, you know, I'm more suited to a financial role. Um, I can tell you, you don't probably don't want me weaving baskets, you know, or singing and entertaining <laughs> or, uh, or likely even telling stories. That's not my natural talent. So you get more sorting, um, you get more sorting and specialization and productivity uh, as a result thereof. So yeah, you you get from okay, debt was probably the first form of exchange, but when we got specialization, which comes with higher productivity, then we need a monetary good. And I talk about a you know an anecdote in the book, which I try to do. You know, I try to pepper a few stories throughout the book because um, man, this stuff can be dry. Uh, if you just do everything on an abstract basis and talk about when I was in college and, you know, I was about to graduate into the worst job market in about 10 years. And, um, I was in Massachusetts and I had an interview down in New York and, uh, my, you know, my girlfriend at the time, I was supposed to meet her down there. Um, she was visiting a friend and I was pretty stressed out cause man, there weren't a lot of jobs to go around. And, um, I was in a city that, I had never been to before. New York can be pretty daunting, you know, on your first visit. If you're not used to the giant skyscrapers and urban crush, I'll never forget getting off the subway and getting onto the street and looking up and seeing, you know, about three degrees of sky and then just buildings, you know, entirely consuming my field of view. So, um, so I got down to the city and I was supposed to go meet up with her. So I hopped a cab and I, you know, I went to the destination and like a fool, I dropped my wallet on the cab after paying him, you know, gave the money to the guy and I must have left the thing on the seat and it drove away. And I did the classic, like, you know, New York sprint after the cab, wait, <laughs> stop. Of course he didn't. And um, so, yeah, so I was at, without my wallet and I was without money in New York City. Well, you know, there's no chance that uh, I was going to be able to, you know, walk into some store and say, hey, guy, you, you know me, I'm your neighbor, you know, uh, give me some, you know, give me a sandwich and uh, I'll just owe you later. Right. Right, buddy. Um, so, yeah, it, it's the it's the you got to have money to get to higher scale civilization with specialization. And we encounter that and experience it every day, maybe not in such stark terms as, uh, as I described when I lost my wallet, but, um, but yeah, it's very important to the, to the development of, uh, of civilization, no doubt. And I think people, um, don't think about that or, or they, or they forget it. Right. Yeah. And, it, and it's easy to lose track of that, uh, in, in its abstraction, you know, you're not saying, um, that, that, 
nothing can function, you know, without you having that money to facilitate trade. Uh, it helps if you think about it in, in segments, right? Because imagine that you're in a family unit, right? And, and you all share everything. It's practically uh, communism at that level, right? Um, right. It, it wouldn't be a big problem if you lose your wallet in your own home, right? Because your, your family members know you, they trust you, um, they might not necessarily like you, and you might owe them a lot of money, but you could say, hey, you know, <laughs> give me that sandwich, I'll, I'll pay you back for it later or whatever. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it, it is the, the scale of society and those personal relationships. This, I think, gets into, you know, um, some of the, you know, Nassim Taleb stuff. I'm going to misquote him. Obviously, he's required reading, not only in Bitcoin, but just in finance in general. I mean, mm-hmm. anybody, any investor who survived the financial crisis of 2008, 2009, and hasn't, uh, you know, read Taleb's stuff at least twice is uh, is missing out, but but I th- I'm going to misquote him. But I think one of the th- things he says is, you know, I'm a, you know, at the family level, I'm a communist. Mm-hmm. You know, at the community level, I'm a socialist. You know, at the I don't know state level or something. You know, I'm, I'm libertarian. I'm yeah, exactly. At the, at the highest I, level, I'm, I'm basically I, an anarchist at the highest level. Right. Yeah, and, and libertarian somewhere in the middle. And then yeah, at that small unit that I know most and care most about and have those deep bonds of trust, then yeah, then I share everything. And, and, you know, Zabo has written about money facilitating societal scaling. Again, I'm probably slightly misquoting, Mm -hmm. but that is, that is crucial. Um, Endowing this monetary good with value and having a trust level in that thing is what allows us to uh, scale up, and it's only at the at those more micro levels where we can um, sort of get by on just trust. Right. Yeah. And one of the things that Zabo stresses a lot in some of his writings is that um, technology like Bitcoin doesn't necessarily eliminate the problems with social scalability, um, but it mitigates it to the best possible degree. Um, in comparison with all of the other technological solutions that we have to solving the problem of trade. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh there's no silver bullet, there's no perfect tech. And of course the you know, as you know well, the there's the tech and then there's the sort of social consensus around it, which is so crucial to Bitcoin um as well as other forms of money. And um yeah, not, nothing's perfect, but certainly uh certainly this Satoshi guy figured out a very clever way of um, of maximal or minimizing the the trust required in the system and therefore maximizing the uh, the social scalability of, of that form of money hmm. at least that's well, my view yeah no absolutely um, I, I feel like we'd be remiss if we didn't um, try to leverage your unique maybe not necessarily unique but but interesting perspectives that you have um having worked for uh large financial firms through the the crisis um and i have i have a ton of notes on some of the things that you touched on in your book um that sort of compounded and and helped to lead up to uh, the events that took place in the financial crisis and then there was a quote in your book uh that i wrote down uh and it was it was something i'm paraphrasing it was something along the lines of um the the most concerning thing uh, about the fact that we had the 2008 financial crisis was that after the fact, all of the problems that led up to that crisis are now still in place and are again compounding, but worse than before. Um, and I think we should we should try to talk t- through a lot of those things that you point out in the book. 
Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And you're right. Me coming from, you know, the financial world, um, this is what I grew up in. Um, it was before the financial crisis. Um, I worked for Goldman, you know, which was one of the biggest investment banks. Um, it was a hard job to get. It was a place a lot of people wanted to work. It's a place where you could make money and learn a lot. And, uh, you know, I fell into that category. And the system, you know, in my defense, I was only there for a couple of years and I was a lowly analyst. Yes, I was a, you know, professional track guy, but, um, but uh, I didn't have a lot of clout or sway, nor did I understand the big picture at the time. But um, there's no doubt that the way the financial system was constructed and has grown up over the past couple decades is, you know, not only deeply dysfunctional, but or at that time, but but still is today. And so when we when we talk about the financial crisis, you know the list of the list of causes is long. Um, I list you know there's probably about ten of them in the book, and other people actually have written in length about these. I mean, you had everything from okay, you had the banks that were overlevered, right? Debt to equity at Goldman at the time that I was there was something like thirty times, right? Thirty x. Uh, at Lehman, which filed for bankruptcy, it was like 40x. Um, that characteristic actually is, is one of the few that has actually improved since the financial crisis. So today, the banks are only levered you know, around, around 10x. So they went from insanely crazy leverage to just very high leverage. So there was the leverage. There was you know, basically this history of you know, home prices in the history of the United States, the modern history had basically never go, gone down. So people assumed that they, that they never were. Um, you had all this bad behavior among the banks where they were basically helping people, you know, lie on their mortgage applications, right? Um, there's this, one of my favorite terms to come out of the financial crisis was ninja loans, N-I-N-J-A loan, which stands for no income job or assets. <laughs> um you know, and then you had the banks, you know, were reselling this stuff both to each other and their clients, and they weren't, you know, disclosing all the risks. In the case of Goldman, you had Goldman had a client that specifically allowed, or requested that the firm create this basket of, you know, crappy loan um, securities and then specifically, you know, resell it to other clients. Um, there was a lawsuit around that. I mean, it was basically bad behavior and fraudulent. And, uh, you know, it's, it's one of the things that occurred at Goldman, you know, both while I was there, you know, and subsequent. Um, you had the problem of CEO and uh, senior, you know, compensation, um, which was these guys make at the senior level to make tens of millions of dollars a year. And um, at the time, they mostly were getting paid, not necessarily directly in cash, but they'd be, you know, paid in stock, and that stock would vest, you know, in a year or so or two. So basically, these guys were making current comp, current compensation, and they weren't tied in for significant periods of time. They didn't have skin in the game, right? As Taleb would say. Um, you had so anyway. So you had all these factors. Um, it's what Charlie Munger, you know, Warren Buffett's partner, calls a Lollapalooza effect, right? 
you can't have, you almost can't have such an extreme outcome like the financial crisis without there being a bunch of different causes. Oh, of course you had the Fed, you know, keeping interest rates too low. You had explicit government policy, right, which was get people, get people who can't afford houses into houses. And that, you know, that was, um, you know, had good intentions, right? It was, I think, mainly uh, designed to help, uh, you know, minorities who didn't have access to um, to home buying to get into homes, but it, but it, you know, it ended up uh, poorly in terms of the outcome. And as you suggested, you know, we have to ask ourselves: Okay, the thing was a disaster. The banks got bailed out. Um, you know, fortunately, uh, fortunately, the CEOs uh, gave the money back, and uh, you know, people got prosecuted and went to jail. Oh wait, no, none of that happened. <laughs> they kept the money. Um, you know, basically there was little or no effect. And what we have today is, I mentioned a couple, you know, statistics that look better in terms of leverage. Um, you know, yes, there's a bit more regulation, and banks have to keep more capital. But the size of these things is much bigger and much worse than it used to be before, right? In the financial crisis, a core problem was that these banks, all of them, were individually too big to fail. So if one failed, and it did, that was Lehman, um, it would bring down the whole system. Well, today the banks, well, let me back up, at that time there were several banks that had balance sheets that were on the order of a trillion dollars each. Today there's several banks that you know are over two trillion dollars each. So we've had more consolidation. We've had the banks go from too big to fail to even bigger and so we're now in this position where, you know, if the banks had already captured the regulators, which they had, um, you know, it's even more so today. I mean, in the crypto, let's say in the crypto sector or industry, such as it is, or in Bitcoin, people talk about exit scams. And, you know, in my opinion, one of the biggest exit scams in modern history was that of CEO Hank Paulson, he ran Goldman when I was there. I remember, uh, you know, logging onto the the quarterly conference calls and hearing Hank's voice come on the phone talking about, you know, it was another record uh, record quarter for profits. And he managed to leave the firm. Well, you know, he joined as an associate, okay? I don't know, 20 years prior or whatever it was. He managed to make his way all the way to the top. In the process, he became, it seems, a billionaire, right? When you look at his Goldman stock holdings um, around the time he left, it appears that he had a net worth uh, in excess of a billion dollars. It was at least hundreds of millions. And so he went into government, and um, this is the revolving door we talk about. And, uh, you know, Taleb and others, well, Taleb specifically has argued that the revolving door is a problem. Clearly it is. He argues that it's mostly a problem only in one direction, which is from government to industry. Mm-hmm. And I agree with him that that is a clear conflict because if you are working in government, you're a regulator or you're a legislator, you are going to treat – well, A, you don't get paid that much in government, um, relatively speaking. And B, you know that if you treat uh, the banks and the firms and members of industry well – well, they're going to have a nice cushy job for you, you know, when you come out of government and you'll you'll uh, make your nut, right? You'll make your money then. So that's a clear problem. Um, 
Taleb argues that the reverse is less of a problem. You know, if you make your money first and then go into government, well, it's not as much of a, of a conflict. When you look at the case of Paulson, Paulson took advantage of this uh, rule or this law whereby if you join Treasury, I can't remember if it uh, is only the Treasury Department or, or the executive branch. I think it may extend to all the executive branch. You get this exemption from uh, capital gains tax. So what what he did is he accumulated you know hundreds of millions or perhaps a billion dollars of Goldman stock, left, went into government, and then got a free pass on uh, capital gains tax. So he wow, was I able, actually didn't know that. Yeah, he was he was able to take his gains. Remember these these gains in Goldman stock were accumulated in a period when basically you know losses and risk were socialized to the taxpayer. Um, the banks were taking huge amounts of risk. Um, there was more than one, you know, individual and department within Goldman that was, you know, committing basically felonies, uh, you know, uh, and fraud related um, activities, you know, under his watch. I'm not saying it was, you know, known to him at the time, but you know, it was nevertheless going on in the firm. You know, some of these issues were were uh, were litigated later, and uh, yeah, he got to walk out with the gains. Um, Right before the whole uh, the system was basically uh, brought to his knees, so you know, talk, talk about the the exit scam of the of the decade. And the thing we have to remember is, you know, the thing about finance. Like I have I have no uh, pretensions about. Uh, there's there's the classic uh, there's a classic quote. Um, it was um, Lloyd Blankfein who succeeded Paulson, right? And some some journalist you know asked him you know. About his work, basically, as you oh, Goldman, and his tongue-in-cheek response was, "We're doing God's work, right?" <laughs> this is a career investment banker, you know, who makes tens of millions a year, you know, mediating and functioning in financial markets. So, you know, this is not um, the business of finance, especially as it existed, you know, pre-financial crisis. Was basically it's basically a rent-taking business, right? These are not entrepreneurs who are creating, you know, new and exciting products or new and exciting business models that are going to bring, uh, you know, new wealth and efficiencies and consumer surplus to their customers. No, these guys are basically intermediaries. You know, I've been one of them. I still am one of them. I'm a financial intermediary. You know, I don't really create anything new. I provide a valuable, a valuable, you know, service, but, but I think that it's, it's, uh, it's disheartening that, Somebody who became a billionaire, it's disheartening that somebody became a billionaire on those terms while helping to bring the financial system to its knees, you know, and also, you know, managed to completely avoid uh, capital gains tax without really creating anything new and valuable, you know, for the economy. Hmm. Sorry yeah, for that rant. No, no, that's, uh, that's where I was trying to go. That's where I was trying to get you to go. Um yeah, and, and you mentioned that in a lot of ways um, things are are worse now, and um, you know, it, in in the the nature of the game changed so much after two thousand eight because the Fed shifted, and, and I think you talk about this in the book a little bit. The Fed shifted its target policies from um, maintaining inflation and keeping unemployment low to um, Things like quantitative easing, interest on excess reserves, um, more recently repurchasing agreements, um, and on top of that, the the compounding of 
um, all of the other negative externalities in the financial market, like the unfunded liabilities, you know, the, the $210 trillion in unfunded liabilities, which have continued yeah. to grow, the interest burden on the government debt Ponzi, as you so call it in your mm-hmm. book, the college student loan bubble, uh, the debt to GDP ratio, and deficit spending all have continued to grow exponentially worse since the original uh, financial crisis. Oh, I lost your audio. Sorry. Yeah, there's <laughs> there's a lot to unpack there. Um, there's no doubt that we need to, we that understanding the debt levels and the dynamics are are crucial. And I uh, I have to think hard about sort of how far I want to zoom out here, um, but uh, I'll give it a shot. So, of course, as you know, we went off the gold standard in 1971. There's a chart in the book, and it actually originally comes from Ray Dalio of Bridgewater. I lifted some of his uh, materials and and basically annotated and added some data myself. And it just shows debt to GDP in the U.S. over the last century. And it shows, you know, the debt to GDP ratio, which really is arguably, you know, the important thing. It's It's not just the nominal level of debt, you know, that grows. It's fine to have debt growth if your economy is growing commensurately, but when the ratio of debt to GDP is growing dramatically over time, you know you have to worry about that. And it also shows the interest burden and amortization. Right, amortization is how much uh, you know it costs as a percent of GDP to to pay down the debt. And those two combined, the amortization, interest burden, are are the debt service. So all these things were fairly flat between. 1944, roughly when we started the Bretton Woods system, which was gold-based, to 1971, and a little bit after, you know, when we left the gold standard. Basically, debt was more or less flat as a percent of GDP. And then it just takes off like a rocket ship, right, as soon as we're on this fiat system. So the Fed, of course, has, you know, two, two mandates, as I think you suggested, which is, you know, full employment keep, you know, get, getting people in jobs as well as keeping inflation, uh, let's say under control or at a reasonable level. So what's happened, of course, over the last several decades is inflation has been pretty much absent. Now, (laughs) I personally believe that as stated by government, I I believe that inflation is effectively understated the actual consumer price inflation. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, even if you allow for some understating of that statistic, we can say that, okay, we went off the gold standard in uh, the early 70s. You know, we had sort of a readjustment period there. Plus you had the oil embargo shock, and then we got into very high inflation. This is the Paul Volcker era. Um, Volcker and the Fed jacked up interest rates, and they beat inflation. And it's basically been a downward slope in inflation and interest rates since then. So that's kind of the, the brief, you know, recent history. Okay. So then the question becomes, well, you know, where is the inflation? And, um, you know, where has, what has the Fed done in terms of policy? And why hasn't this jacked up inflation? So the Fed has said 2% is the right amount of inflation. And we can talk about that, but I'll, but I'll table it for a second. Well, as long as two, as inflation, as reported, you know, and measured by the government, 
is under 2%, the Fed has said, look, we're, we're going to print money and stimulate because if inflation is not a problem, well, then we ought to be doing everything we possibly can to uh, goose economic growth and put as many people on jobs as possible. So we're just going to stimulate. And yes, it's gone through cycles, of course, right? There's been, you know, rates get lowered and then they get uh, increased over time. But every cycle, you know, through the last decades, every business cycle, the, you know, the peak and the trough interest rate in that sine wave has been lower and lower. So it looks like a sine wave function, except it's downward sloping. And the Fed has decided, you know, this is the right thing to do as long as we don't have too much CPI. Now, let's go back to sort of basic Austrian economics. And this is the Mises stuff, the Mises stuff. You know, he, uh, I think it was in Human Action, right? This amazing tome um, on economics that everybody ought to read at least twice. Yeah. Um, it's a it's a it's a heavy lift, but man, it's worth it. You know, he he called out three types of goods, he, and he talks about consumption goods and capital goods and money. And we know the capital good. Well, we know the consumption goods are the stuff that we consume all the time, like food and clothing. They don't last, but we get you know use out of them, utility. Capital goods are long-lived. They actually have uh, productive capacity. They allow us to make either more capital goods or ultimately uh, more consumption goods. Um, and then you've got money. So the Fed has been printing more and more money. And in a simple you know, economic model like the Mises model with those three types of goods, well, if you print more money, then, then that ought to flow to those other two types of goods. And the prices of those goods ought to increase. And so clearly that's happened with capital goods, right? Like asset prices have gone bananas. I mean, the price of housing, the price of stocks, basically all risk assets have clearly felt that, um, you know, that, that inflationary effect of, of printing money. With consumption goods, it's more complicated. And there's this inflationary effect, which, of course, you know, is coming from from the money. The more money you print, you know, the higher um, prices of consumption goods ought to go. And the classic model for this is called the, you know, the wage price, you know, feedback loop. And the mechanism is simple. Basically, um, you know, if... Uh, if you if the central bank prints money, that puts money in the hands of consumers, so they want to spend more, and for them to spend more, they bid up the prices of of goods and services. You know, likewise, companies are having to hire more people in order to produce those goods and services, or they're having to pay higher wages to the people that they hire. And so they put more money in the pockets of consumers who then spend more and you get this feedback loop. So that's the, you know, classic sort of Keynesian neoclassical model of, um, of, uh, of the wage price inflation spiral. But then we've had this countervailing force, you know, the last couple of decades, more than one countervailing force. One, of course, has been free trade. And, you know, this is covered in the book. You know, the, the big piece of it, obviously, is China. I mean, you just... You look at the numbers and you see China joins the WTO in 2001 and manufacturing wages in China quadruple, you know, mm -hmm. in, the, in the span of about a decade. So um, so that means that, you know, lower cost labor is employed 
to buy goods or to sell goods and services to the U.S. So so that's a downward pressure on prices of goods and services here. And then, of course, you got automation. You know, you got new business models like Amazon that find a way to deliver um, consumer goods at a cheaper price, you know, to more people over time. So you've got the tech effect. And so so you've got this sort of when you think about where's the money printing going? Okay, on the asset side, yes, it jacks up prices and simultaneously, you know, encourages people to borrow at lower interest rates in order to buy those assets, which pushes up the price. That's clear, you know, in the real estate market when, um, you know, I can borrow money at 4% interest rate rather than 8% interest rate. Well, of course, I'm going to bid up the price of the house that I buy because I can still make the mortgage payment uh, at a higher valuation and a higher level of debt. So that's clearly inflationary on the asset side, but then you've got sort of this countervailing uh, tug of war of forces on the consumer price side between the deflationary forces of, uh, you know, automation and innovation and free trade, you know, which are fighting against that, you know, positive wage price spiral um, pushing prices up. And it seems like the deflationary forces on the consumer goods side have actually won out. And right. so the the central bank is you know is, has said continues to say two percent is the right level of you know price inflation for goods and services. Well, I'm deeply skeptical that, that that's the right and natural level. You know, maybe it's zero percent. Maybe it's even negative. And you know, others smarter and more eloquent than me have said this. Um, I think Safedine talks about this. You know, when he talks about the the Belle Epoque era in the late 19th century. But there have been periods in history when uh, consumers have done really well because consumer prices have been falling and right. there's been relatively full employment, but people are, are richer because, you know, they have more spending power. Right. The, yeah. yeah. And instead, the era we're in is is that the central bank says, no, 2% is the right inflation number. So we're going to just keep printing money and jacking up uh, asset prices and encouraging people to take on debt um, until we get that 2% inflation. Right. Yeah. And, and we don't want to, um, it, it, for me, it seems like, you know, the, the first instinct would be like, well, if demand for dollars internationally is, is so high, um, then that's a good thing for the American consumer, because like you said, it's going to have a deflationary effect. And if my goods and services are getting cheaper, you know, if my dollars go further then that, that's, that's better for everyone. Um, but apparently, you know, I don't have the, the inherent infallible divine wisdom of, of a central banker. Um, but, and it, and it's more than that though, because, um, we, we have sort of a multi-pronged problem here because uh, another thing you, you mentioned in the book is the the risk of insolvency brought about by the misallocation of capital, you know, which is borne by the taxpayers. We have a system of socialized losses uh, that's been put in place since the 2008 financial crisis. Socialized losses, but um, free market profits, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's 100% right. That was the that that lesson was if not the biggest lesson, then among the biggest lessons of the financial crisis. And we, as you as you suggested earlier, we learned the lesson, but we didn't fix the problem, right? It is that asymmetry of as long as there is a highly levered, as long as there's lots of debt and leverage in the system, which there is because, you know, the central banks have made it almost impossible. You know, they made it foolish not to borrow, basically, because interest rates keep falling. And um, 
you know, so it's just it's just too tempting for the for the consumer as well as the investor. I got to tell you, you know, as, as someone who's tasked with managing clients' wealth, <laughs> just this year, you know, uh, there's discussion about well, there's lots of you know, there's geopolitical risks and you know, valuations for risk assets like stocks are high. You know, we could go to war with Iran. We're coming up on an election, you know, where it's an uncertain outcome and you know, who knows what's, what the administration's going to going to do next. And I had this conversation with, with my clients and then I have to make the counter argument with it, which is, oh yes, but also the Fed is printing money right now at the fastest rate, you know, since uh, 2008 when it had to, you know, basically print hundreds of billions of dollars instantly, you know, to right. save a, a failing financial institution. Quote so, unquote yeah. not QE. That's right. The quote unquote not QE. Exactly. It's the uh it's the printing money to buy government securities, but it's not QE because, you know, we deem that bills, which are shorter maturity, treasury bills, you know, don't count as, as bonds. Yeah, go figure. So, but so yeah, sorry, I, I don't mean to interrupt you, but since I'm positive that at this point we've put all the wives and girlfriends to sleep that might uh, be unfortunate enough to listen to this in the car or whatever, um, let's let's try to shift gears on Bitcoin so we don't go too long. Um, real quick, the money ranking criteria that you talk about in the book, I'll go ahead and list them off for you just in case uh, you don't have them written down. Identifiable, transferable, durable, density, scarcity, short-term value, long-term value, unseizability, censorship resistance, privacy, required for an important purpose, and backed by a powerful agent. Um, and, and you mentioned earlier it's 14, and it's a little bit cumbersome. Um, and, and we don't have to go through each one step-by-step, because step, if people want that, they can, they can get your book. But uh, you compare fiat to gold to bitcoin and you lay them all out in a big chart and it's pretty obvious you know looking at it at a glance that bitcoin is the clear winner in your mind um so having gone over all of these macro problems right that we could probably talk about for hours um bitcoin seems like a clear winner a clear answer um let's talk a little bit about that yeah um i think that's right um you're right that I, you know, I came up with this framework of 14 characteristics of good money, which I hadn't seen, you know, written down anywhere before. To me, it 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 speaks uh, logically to how we ought to how we ought to assess any form of money um, in terms of its underlying characteristics that make it good money, you know, that make it a good uh, medium of exchange across space and time, and 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 any investor in Bitcoin has to has to examine this why well what we're saying the thing about bitcoin today is is money okay is bitcoin money yes bitcoin is money and people use it as money in some cases however as a practical matter as you know it's not frequently transacted as a medium of exchange for goods and services yet so we have to ask ourselves well how does it score on these on these characteristics today and you know, what's the direction, right? How is it likely to score in the future? Um, which of these characteristics is it uh, improving on um, over time, both as the protocol, you know, develops, but also hardens, and then also as additional layers get built on top um, to, make it, uh, to make it more usable and to improve upon some of those characteristics. So, you know... 
in the there's clearly there's clearly areas where Bitcoin stands out. I mean, the scarcity is clear. Um, you know, the long term stable value is clear. If I compare it to the dollar. By the way, people talk about stability. You know, in the in the price or value of money. I think it's important to separate short-term stable from long-term stable because those, those really are two different characteristics. And it's clearly demonstrated when you look at, let's say, the dollar versus gold. The dollar, very short-term stable, right? Prices are extraordinarily stable in dollar terms. Um, but, of course, as we know in the long term, if you hold your dollars, you know, you're going to lose value every year. Gold is the flip side of that. Gold, over long periods of time, very long periods of time, holds its value. Um, you know, if you hold a piece of gold for a decade or two, uh, it's pretty unlikely that you're gonna that you're gonna lose value on that. But gold's price in terms of purchasing power or as measured in dollars in the short term is it's it bounces around. It's actually kind of volatile. Um, Bitcoin obviously is more short term volatile today. Um, I believe that as the thing grows and as um, you know, I think it's Andreas uh, probably who who talked about you know Bitcoin being the little dinghy next to the Titanic cruise ship, which is the dollar. But as Bitcoin scale grows, it's likely to uh, be less tossed around uh, by the waves and become more stable. Um, but long term, you know, so far it's clearly held its value, and its value has increased, and it's hard to see why that wouldn't be the case, given that it uh, given that it is got a very clear and very limited, uh, you know, supply schedule. Right. So, yeah, I mean, the, the places where Bitcoin really stands out, um, you know, or identifiability, right? There's, there's all, except for, let's say, uh, marketing tactics, underhanded slash scammy marketing tactics by those who try to expropriate the Bitcoin name, you know, for other projects. Aside from that, it's very hard to counterfeit a Bitcoin um, it's extremely transferable, you know, it's, it's durable as long as there's a functional internet and, um, uh, you know, and, and access to, to computers. It's extremely divisible. It's very dense. I mean, you know, I think the calculation I did for the book was, you know, you can fit, call it a half million dollars of cash in a backpack. Likewise with gold, as you know, you can fit a much larger amount in uh, you know a paper wallet or a hardware wallet so hugely potentially dense the fungibility you know we're we're still learning about um, I have uh, I'm, I'm basically optimistic about about Bitcoin's fungibility um, and how that develops although you know we can we can talk about that but um, and likewise privacy that's still playing out um, again I'm, I'm optimistic we we don't know yet how it's going to turn out. Um, clearly, you know, the U S is backed by a powerful agent, right? The, the U S military being the most powerful agent in the world and it's required for taxes. So those are two areas where, where Bitcoin, you know, scores more poorly, but I would argue that with time, uh, you know, there are more powerful agents that are likely to support Bitcoin and there may be more, you know, merchants that are likely to, uh, to require it. A small number already do, but um, but that's a couple areas where I see actually upside for Bitcoin. And so when as a, as a, when I look at it as an investor, I say, okay, today overall, you know, the dollar 
outscores gold. The dollar still outscores Bitcoin, although Bitcoin slightly outscores gold. But when I look at the trajectory of where Bitcoin is likely headed, I think Bitcoin's gonna gonna outscore you know both of them. And and you know caveat that look, these fourteen characteristics, um, in the book I equally weight them right, and mm-hmm. that's not really you know fair. I mean some of them may be more important than others. Moreover, some of them may be more important to certain people than to other people. And as we know from our Austrian economics, you know, I can't just sort of meld all the demand curves of, of every individual economic agent, you know, into one. You know, pe- different people have, uh, have different tastes and they, um, you know, they have different characteristics that they value more than less. Um, so, so that's a, you know, that's a caveat to the analysis, but I think that a lot of these characteristics are very important and Bitcoin scores very well on, uh, you know, on, on a lot of the important ones. Right. Yeah. And one thing that I really like about the model, uh, regardless of maybe some of the potential problems with just the weight, the weightiness of the different categories, I feel like we could, we could probably exclude that externality and, and be okay. Uh, is as an intellectual exercise, you can, you can plug anything you can think of into, uh, this, this formula and judge the properties of, of pretty much anything as to how well suited it is to be money. You know, I could use pens or right. I could uh, use apples, anything. Um, and, and certain, individuals um particularly like let's say gold bugs right uh they harp uh heavily on one or two aspects of this list and they fail to uh recognize that from a from a broad perspective anything that functions as a anything can function as money but certain things function better as a money than other things because of their inherent properties um and and that is what i really like about this criteria is that it's kind of all encompassing and that you don't get too hemmed up on the importance of one particular thing you know like i'm hearing peter schiff talking about intrinsic value of gold in my head right now and and jewelry and uh, it, it just doesn't make any sense when you look at things from a broader perspective yeah, no, hundred percent. That was definitely one of the one of the goals I had in laying laying it out was I almost couldn't count all the conversations I'd had with um, you know let's say skeptics, right? People in in classic finance, um, you know, investors. Um, they'll do exactly what you say. They'll they'll bring up one characteristic. You know, what my favorite probably is you know the U.S. government and taxes, right? Well, the dollar, the U.S. government's never going to accept any form of money other than the U.S. dollar as payment for tax. Therefore, the U.S. dollar, you know, always will be money and nothing else can be. And, and it's that sort of extrapolation of the single characteristic that the person's talking about into, you know, the overall concept of can this be money or not that is, it's really, yeah, it's, it's a logical it's a logical fallacy. It's a real mistake because it fails to recognize that no single form of money scores well on all these characteristics, right? As you say, you can you can apply it to anything that could be used as money, you know, whether it's you know soap or cell phone minutes, you know, or copper or anything else. And it's not uh, it's just not rigorous to say that oh one or two of these characteristics are all that matter. No, it's the it's the whole basket, and no single form of money scores well on any uh, of these. So 
it's just pros and cons and trade-offs and it's an attempt uh as you say to to look at the bigger picture and it's not perfect but um you know i think i i agree with you i think it's a useful tool um so the third and final portion of your book um is your attempt at kind of painting with a broad brush some of the more uh, commonly talked about criticisms of Bitcoin. I like to call them like office-based talking points, right? I mean, if if everyone's sitting in an office and Bitcoin comes up, this is what you're going to hear people say. You're going to hear people say things like, oh, uh, the miners in China control Bitcoin or like, um, oh, well, as soon as quantum computing comes out, that they're, they're very poorly thought out criticisms that um, are just constantly lobbed. They're like frag grenades thrown at Bitcoin on a daily basis. Uh, and, and I like... You, you, you don't dedicate much more than a couple pages to each one. Uh, and, and like I said, you just paint with a broad brush and kind of gently touch on each topic to sort of like uh, assuage, or how do you pronounce that? Assuage? Assuage. I don't know. Assuage. Assuage your readers mm-hmm. uh, of, of some of the fears that they might have after going through the Socratic journey with you to find Bitcoin. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. You know, there's the, I like the way you framed it, which is sort of the, you know, pick, pick your favorite, uh, pick your favorite piece of FUD, right, to lob at Bitcoin. Um, and the way I approached it was, as I was trained to do as an investor, which is, you know, the way I look at Bitcoin is, yes, it's money today, but really it's a, it's a growth money, right? I think it may have been, I don't remember, I think it might, might have been Pierre Richard, someone else that, that articulated this concept, but basically... Bitcoin today is a, it's like a growth stock. It hasn't reached its potential. You know, it's already somewhat money, but as it develops and gets uh, adopted and as more people learn about it, well, then it, it will become a mature form of money. And so, and so the question from an investment standpoint is, okay, well, how can it go wrong, right? Every investment, you, you have your two sides of the ledger. You have your investment highlights or your upside and, you know, What's the potential value and what's going to drive it there? And then you got the laundry list of things that could go wrong. So, you know, I've always uh, been taught that uh, as an investor, you ought to try to think of all the possible risks that can that can go wrong with an investment, and you ought to address them uh, one by one. So that's what I attempted to do. It's funny, you know, it, it, the original version of the book, I think it only had like five chapters. And the last chapter was, you know, investment was risks of Bitcoin or investment risk of Bitcoin. And and it was, you know, the single monolith chapter was like 40 pages long or whatever. And I realized, okay, I'm going to have to subdivide this a little bit. So I'm going to have to try and character or categorize it. And and so I divided it up a bit, right? I, I divided into technical risks, uh, political risks, economic risks, sociological and psychological risks. And, you know, the... It's impossible to divide and categorize all these risks strictly among those categories, but I think it works out pretty well. And yeah, I just uh, I just take them one at a time and and uh, step to the mound and uh, and try to try to hit them out of the park. And you know, clearly, clearly they are all risks. Nevertheless, the the sheer number of risks that exist. The vast majority of them, I think, are are pretty small, and you know, I can easily I can easily list them list them off and then try to sort of rebut them all. We'd probably be here uh, for most of the day if I if I addressed the whole list. But um, 
Hmm. But yeah, that's kind of how I approached it. Yeah, you don't have to get into too many of the specifics. Um, I think that we covered a lot of good stuff here. Um, is there anything else that you want to hit on that circle back to that we might have missed or, or skipped over? On the just the whole conversation, really. Yeah, no, I think uh, I think we covered a lot. Um, appreciate uh, appreciate your questions. Um, you know, appreciate you having me on and uh, people taking a listen. You know, the, the just to reiterate, I think the the goal of the of the book really is to attempt to in a readable format you know which is basically as you say written sort of in a socratic um format and is relatively easy to read with a couple of anecdotes you know i really tried to to go soup to nuts on why bitcoin is interesting as an investment including the you know short form what is money you know the characteristics of money what's the state of the world in terms of debt um you know, the Bitcoin basics on how it works and, you know, what the investment upside is as well as, uh, as well as the risks. I'll say one more thing about the, um, you know, the Bitcoin basics is, and this is again, you know, personal story. When I was first trying to learn about Bitcoin, you know, I didn't know where to go, right? I didn't know what to do. I think I, this this, in 2017, I mean, you know, there, some pods had, uh, had been established, but like the, there, there wasn't all that much material. Um, at least I didn't know where to find it. So I, of course, started with the, you know, the press and the mainstream media. And I read a bunch of articles. There were a few books, you know, which I read. I read Digital, Digital Gold. There's one other title that I read. And I was about, you know, I was about probably ten hours into my research online, and I sat back and I and I, I said to myself, you know, just tell me how the damn thing works, right? So what I was missing was it didn't have the basics of how does a cryptographic hash function work? How does ECDSA signatures work? You know, how are blocks constructed in terms of, you know, hashing the transactions and the timestamp and the, and the existing blockchain and finding the nonce, right? And that random process. And then for me, that, for me, that was the aha moment of, oh, this thing at a basic technical level, I can kind of understand it. You know, I'm not a coder, I'm not a programmer, but I hadn't found up to that point, and I think it's still hard to find, you know, Mm -hmm. books that will, basically will go there. And that was, by the way, the hardest part of the book for me to write was attempting to just in a few pages put the basic technical specs um, and functions for people to to understand how the system works. So we, we didn't touch on that, but... I just want to say that that is included in the book. You know, for those who are less technical, you could probably skip that section. But for those, you know, who are interested in, uh, you know, for your audience who are interested in, in helping people learn about it, I did, I thought it was important to me to include a section on that um, for those who are, you know, who are interested in learning about some of the technical aspects, uh, you know, in addition to the bigger picture about, you uh, you know about the macro stuff so so that's in there too and that may be of interest you know to your listeners who want a book that they can hand somebody you know who's interested potentially in learning about bitcoin but wants something that's sort of accessible and readable but is going to cover you know all those uh, all those bases um at least somewhat 
Yeah, I think you're absolutely right about that. Uh, that's something that I've taken for granted because when I first started learning about Bitcoin, I watched a series on YouTube. I think it was called like the, the Bitcoin Blackboard series or something like that. And uh, the the very first few episodes, the guy goes into layman technical explanations of um, sort of what makes Bitcoin work under the hood. And then for me, like a little bit later on in my journey, I started getting into coding and, and trying to understand more of Bitcoin at the protocol level. So I think that I took that knowledge for granted, at least um, when it comes to trying to help other people understand the technology yeah. and, and why it's so important and why it's so uh, revolutionary. Um, so I definitely applaud you for that effort because I, I was thinking, you know, as I was reading it, um, you know, I, I'm tr I try to be skeptical of everything and, and no offense to you, but reading your book, I try to be very skeptical as I'm as reading it. Like, okay, where's this guy going to mess up? Right. And when I get to, you know, I go through, um, you know, hundred pages of macroeconomics or whatever. And then I get to the part with the technical explanations. I'm like, Oh, here we go. <laughs> this is going to be it. The, I hope his editor was good. And I hope he had some good consultations. And, and, but I think you, you nailed it. I think that you covered what needed to be covered. And I think that, uh, the, the reader will walk away uh, with a better understanding. Well, I appreciate that. I appreciate you saying that. And uh, that was actually my personal fear. I said that was, you know, that was the hardest part of the book to write. And I had read, you know, I hadn't actually talked to, I hadn't had much in the way of conversations. I just didn't have that much access to, you know, very, you know, technical people. Um, I did make sure that I read uh, Grokking Bitcoin, um, you know, cover to cover and in detail. That was one of the latest steps I took because I wrote the section and I was like, yeah, this is where I had the most fear about, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to get something wrong. I'm going to screw up. Um, so I, I definitely was paranoid in that regard. And, uh, you know, who knows, maybe some, maybe someone will, uh, will uncover, you know, something that I got a little bit wrong, but, uh, but I'm glad to hear that, uh, I'm glad to hear that it passed muster. <laughs> Sure. I mean, you know, I, I'm I'm no technical expert either, but uh, j just being able to visualize, right, um, the the complexities of a hashing algorithm, right, to see the difference that one number makes in the output mm. versus another number makes in an output, um, I, I think is is very telling for for somebody with no technical background whatsoever. I think that that opens the mind of understanding in, in a lot of ways. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. And I also, you know, obviously I can't, you know, list all the acknowledgements here, but I do want to give a shout out to, you know, those who I read. I mentioned, you know, Grokking Bitcoin. Um, I had read Understanding Bitcoin, which was actually published, I think, in, in uh, 2013. Um, hmm. uh, so, you know, there was, there were definitely, uh, there were definitely shoulders uh, on, you know, on, whom I stood uh, for the benefit of that. So thank, thanks to all, thanks to all who I can't remember, you know, who articulated and wrote this stuff out clearly and uh, and helped me learn. I'm in debt to those guys. Yeah, one hundred percent. This this community stands on the shoulders of giants before it, and then the people in the community are are just fantastic. Um, and so, guys, Andy is criminally underfollowed on Twitter, and his book is is critically under discussed. So uh, let's fix that for him. You know, uh, go follow Andy on Twitter. Check out his book. Um, I'll post links to both those things down in the show notes. Um, Andy, if you want, you can share your your Twitter handle. Yeah, thanks. It's uh, it's Edstrom Andrew. And uh, likewise, Colin, I mean, Colin has a much larger following than I do, but uh, highly recommend uh, him as a follow. And, uh, you know, obviously you're listening to the pod if you're hearing this, but uh, spread the word, spread the Bitcoin echo chamber. Uh, let's make this echo chamber bigger. All right. Thanks, Andy. 
All right, guys, welcome back. Thanks so much for listening. I hope that you enjoyed my chat with Andy. I feel like him and I could have riffed like forever on macro. So so I tried to cut that conversation short so we could at least bring it back to Bitcoin. Maybe I'll have him back on the show at some point again so we can talk more in depth about some of the stuff that we didn't have time to go really deep into. We tried to skim a lot of broad topics and a lot of information. And if you want to learn more, I definitely encourage you to go check out his book. It's called Why Buy Bitcoin. I'm going to put a link to it down in the show notes. So if you want to find it, um, you can either search for it, you know, Google search or on Amazon. I think you can also find it on Apple iTunes if you search for it there, or you can just go down to my link down in the show notes and you'll be able to find it there. I think his book is a really, really great introductory piece for anybody who's wanting to get into Bitcoin and looking to learn more from the ground floor. It's also a good um, review for anybody who's been in Bitcoin for a while. It, it hits on all the right points, and I think that it's a really complete piece on Bitcoin and why it's valuable. So if you pick it up and you decide that you really like it, you know, uh, give Andy like some shout outs on Twitter or give him give his book some reviews on Amazon or on iTunes. I'm sure that'll go a long way for him and he'll really appreciate it. And make sure and follow Andrew on Twitter. He's definitely very underfollowed. I'll have a link to his Twitter down in the show notes as well. And if you guys want to reach out to me, if you have any questions or comments about the show, um, you can reach out to me at bitcoinechochamber at gmail.com, or you can hit me up on Twitter at heavilyarmedc, that's the letter C. I spend a lot of time on Twitter, and my DMs are always open, so you'll be able to get a hold of me there. You can also find all of our episodes at bitcoinechochamber.com, or you can pretty much go to any of your favorite podcasting services and search for us there, and you'll find it. That's all I got for this one, guys. Thanks so much for your continued support and for listening to the show today, and I will see you next time.